Good morning and welcome to another episode of Moped Outlaws. Today we are blessed to have Tony Vidal, a filmmaker, a social leader, and a man with a big heart, as you can tell by the way he writes and the way his characters play in his films. I'm super excited to have you, Tony, because I've I've loved every film I've seen of yours. I bought Baja on the first day it was available on Apple wow. TV. Um and I've got lots of questions and encouragement for you. Thank you for coming. You are most welcome. Thank you for having me. And we should mention that um, you're, you often go by Dick Hertz. Dick Hertz or Dixie Normus or Humongous. Yes. <laughs> got it. Seymour Butts as well. <laughs> yeah, that's your cousin. Yeah. <laughs> On the other side. Oh, come on now. <laughs> well, we, all, we should also mention that Greg has uh, acted in several different roles in terms of the films that you've made. Producer, associate producer. Am I missing anything? I was EPK on the first one, The Prankster. EPK. Here's, here's my, my uh, co-director. Uh, this is Luna the Cat. Say hi, Luna. Luna. Meow. Meow. <laughs> Yes, Greg has been was a full fledged producer on Baja, and he lived to or he survived to tell the story. So, shooting in the wilds of Mexico on a low budget with a pirate crew, it was pretty amazing. I got my Mulahe shirt on. Oh, excellent! Excellent. Viva! Yeah. (laughs) Um, So, talk a little bit. uh, Oh, wait. Let me ask this question: Being a filmmaker is not an easy life. Right. It's not glamorous in the sense that most people think about it. I'd love to know a little bit about the origins of how you found your way and created the commitment that you live by to become a filmmaker. Hmm, That's interesting. Um, Well, it starts with a passion for story. Uh, I was an English major in college and then I, I went to film school, but the study of literature uh, really got me inspired by the great novels and the great stories. And what I loved about it was it expanded my mind. And I realized at an early age, 22, that, boy, uh, I would like to do something like that for other people. And at the same time, I realized that, well, in our era, because English literature, you're studying stuff that could be hundreds of years old. uh, In our era, films are the most dynamic medium and the most transformative, I think, and the most powerful. So I said, okay, uh, I want to tell inspiring stories and I want to do it through film. And I thought the way to do that was to go to film school. So anyway, um, you know, that's how it all started. It's really the impulse was to tell great stories that help transform consciousness. Yeah. It's really clear that transformation con transformation of consciousness is a big value and a core value that runs through all of your work. It's, it's just really apparent the way that people are challenged and their hearts guide them to the next level of resolution of the different dramatic tensions in the films. I love that about your filmmaking. What was it about your early beginnings that you found like the most challenging, like going to school, getting the degree, but then there's that piece where you have to make the first film and in terms of the market and those sorts of things. How did you overcome some of those challenges? Well, I don't know that I've ever fully overcome them, (laughs) mainly because um, I started out trying to make it in the corporate film world and uh, to be bluntly honest, I, I never really made it um, with that world. I did work in the studio system for a number of years as a script analyst. Um, and I spent really years, sorry to say, pitching material and trying to get uh, a project going and certainly knew some 
influential people and had some great meetings and uh, that and five dollars will get you a latte in most places. So <laughs> I, <laughs> 10 will get them one too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so ultimately, you know, my story is really about self empowerment and it took me a long time. I mean, I was writing a lot of stuff over the years and I also sidetracked into an alternate career in real estate. My father had a, a commercial real estate business. And um, as I said, I, I took a diversion there for several years and it was really helpful in that it taught me a lot about business and also taught me a, about money stuff. And I made some money, which ultimately led to my ability to self-finance or largely self-finance my projects. So uh, without that, I don't know that we'd be talking here today. Well, we might be, but it'd be on a different topic. About <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <Okay>. real estate. <laughs> <laughs> possibly, possibly. This is much more interesting, though. Yeah. I'm wondering if you are able to say a couple things about making your first film, The Prankster, that you would do differently now that you've have three that you've created. Well, it's like anything else. The more you do it, the more you learn and um, you can't do it. I mean, you can't learn it until you do it. So there's some inevitable uh, potholes that you need to step into and you learn from that. So I think, uh, you know, going from one to three, I've learned how to do things much more efficiently. I am much more um, spontaneous than I used to be. I, learned how to deal with people with a, a lot more panache, if you will, uh, a word used in the prankster in a prominent scene. And I um, learned to do things a lot cheaper too. So it's about not taking things so seriously and uh, just well, a lot of things and, and vetting your people very carefully. So you have as harmonious a crew and set as possible and not realizing you don't have to, spend a lot of money and also getting the people on board who are in sync with the vision for one and also with the style of filmmaking which is fast it's run and gun when you're in a low budget you're moving and you you know you don't have time for a cinematographer who wants to light for an hour and a half for one shot that's just not not going to happen so you know you learn that you got to have people uh what's it called sign on for what you're doing uh, buy in that's that's what i meant they have to buy into what you're doing and um if you get put pull that all together you can actually do a film pretty painlessly because you've picked good people and you're moving smoothly and you're not agonizing over petty decisions and um voila it's just a bunch of people waltzing in front of the camera and saying a few words and you cut that together. You got a movie. So Not that you, simple. You, you know, let me just add this, uh, having a really solid finished coherent script is really the key because if you just shoot the script, the script, if the script's solid and you just shoot it, Hey, you got a good movie. If you don't have a solid script, you can have the best cinematographer and the greatest actors and it's not going to, not going to work or not work well. And we can see that with Hollywood movies all the time. So that's really the key. If, if I'm, if I'm advising um, other filmmakers who, who want to know the key to success, as it were, make sure your script is as good as possible and shoot the script and don't waver. Don't, don't wimp out in the middle and go, oh, I don't know if this scene's going to work. Uh, let's try something else. No, don't do that. Stick to the script. I love it. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, you know, actors want to improvise. So, okay. You know, we shoot some scenes and, and they say, Hey, can I do that? Do it this way? It says, sure. You do one take for the actor. You do it your way. Once in a while, it's okay. Uh, and it gets in the movie. Most of the time it it's not. And I, I made a mistake one time of allowing actors to improvise a scene uh, off from what it was written. And I really regretted that. And um, anyway, we worked around it and made it work. But you've also had um, instances where an actor improvised something and it did work. Like if I believe that um, the character at the end of Baja when he's yeah. telling his parents. Yeah, no, that was gold. Uh, the character, um, 
Jake Thomas improvised a, a recap of the whole plot of the movie at the end, but it was really brilliant and funny and way better than what I had written. So yeah, yeah, that, that happens. What, what help has helped you about the evolution in, in digital capture? Have you been able to make things more efficient or less costly by using digital capture? Digital is great because, you know, obviously when I started, people were still using film and film let me make sure my hat. <laughs> right. How's that look? Look okay? Looks okay. great. <laughs> Makeup approves. Um, oh, my God, film. You were like, you, do you remember when you had, used to have still cameras and you had one roll of film with 24 shots and you had, you're like, should I shoot this or should I not shoot this? And, and, and now with our phones, we shoot thousands and thousands of photos without any concerns because it cost anything, right? Similarly with digital Filmmaking, you can shoot hours and hours of digital. It's, it doesn't cost you anything more to put it on the chip. So it's really, uh, really made things more efficient and a lot cheaper. And having that freedom, be careful with the freedom because you can just go on all day shooting stuff. But <laughs> One thing I know is you um, have invested, we're having bandwidth issues, I think. Are you with us? Are you yeah, here? Okay. Um, it seems you draw from the Hollywood pool pretty nicely. Like you get some really solid character actors in your films, like Kurt Fuller, Raymond Berry, Mark McGullis. Um, do you find that these actors are able to do that run and gun with a low budget film? Do they work well with you in that manner? Yeah, mostly. I have a little bit to say about that, but I think most actors really appreciate uh, speed. I mean, we were working with Kurt Fuller on Baja, right? And he right. was amazed. We were running around. Jorge Roman was the cinematographer, and he had a red camera about this big, this big, and um, handheld, and just, okay, we're ready to shoot. And Kurt was used to Hollywood productions where they're big – Panavision type cameras, even the big digital and they light. He said, God, in most shoots I've been on, they're like lighting all morning and we don't even get a shot in before lunch. And I go, wow, it's crazy. And so um, when you think about it from the actor point of view, just sitting around and sitting around all day is just such a drag. Uh, so to be able to do something that's more in the moment and moving along, almost more like either, if you will, where things just keep happening and you have to be on your toes they like it for the most part. Now, what I, what I was going to say too about that is that I've also learned one thing to learn is always meet and or audition your actors. I've had a few cases where we put people in because we had to and, and they didn't audition. And um, boy, you really need to get a rapport and a, an energetic feel for the person you just can't go on what they've done before or their name. You have to, um, you have to feel it and you have to connect. So, you know, even if they're a well-known name, I would insist on meeting and talking and even running some lines to just to be sure. Cause um, that's always worked for me to uh, everyone I've ever auditioned and cast. They've been great people. I didn't audition, but just cast been a little problematic. So this thread of, of the human element of your storytelling is, is a like pinnacle piece about your style. And in, in preparing to speak to you today, I looked at the slate of new projects you're working on. Mm. And uh, there's some really great humorous kind of stuff there, as well as some deep, important human interest things. And particularly in the film Daikini Love, there's a lot of thematic things in there that I think are really amazing and cross a lot of different areas of human um, emotion. I'd just love it if you talk a little bit about what inspired you to write Dakini Love. Yes. Okay. And I would I would include the other two. I have three. What I oh, well, I'm going to get to those. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. <laughs> well, sticking with Dakini Love for now. Um, about 10 
11 years ago, I was really going through a very uh, curious phase in my life where I was investigating a lot of things like, you know, what is the truth? And, you know, that's a big topic these days. What is, what is reality? What is the truth? What is, you know, what is the matrix? And, you know, how do we navigate all this? So, um, hence, uh, I got into some really interesting stuff. Some people would, would, uh, call it alternate theory. I hate, hesitate to use, use the word conspiracy, but anyway, conspiracy, uh, concepts about what's really happening in the world. So, uh, that really prompted my imagination because whether you buy into any of that or not, you know, it's kind of, for me as a storyteller is almost irrelevant. It's great story material. It is great story material. So I'm interested in telling a great story. I'm not going to stand behind and say, Oh, this is really what's going on. I don't know. I won't be the first one to say, I don't have a corner on the truth at all. I'm just another guy out here throwing darts and guessing. So, um, that said, I took the liberty of writing a story that's very fanciful. Bikini Love is based on the idea that we live in kind of a matrix and there's something called the transmission, which is uh, controlling certain aspects of everyone's mental state. And if we can just invalidate that transmission, we can open up our minds and have a beautiful world that's full of peace and, and love and harmony. And, um, so in that story, the lead character, Dakini Love, is hooks up with this Che Guevara type guy who's down in South America, who's created the filter, which invalidates the transmission. And she's like just learning about all this. And she works for a secret organization that's actually nonviolent and is for pro-Earth. It's called Earth Advocates. So she's a secret agent for the earth. And she has all this wild adventures with this guy named Raul. And um, they go up against the, the brotherhood, the brotherhood, <laughs> yeah, the brotherhood. Um, and we, you know, you can fill in who you think that is and uh, it could be any and all of them. But anyway, <laughs> what I love about the story from the synopsis I read is that it's a mixture of adventure drama and then these subtexts of the human theme of how do we navigate the modern world? And it, it's not a science fiction film, but flying saucers play a role. <laughs> and the idea of familial separation is also a, a really mm. important piece the, that what really struck me about the synopsis I read was that how the main character Daikini love struggles with the awareness of her parents in her life. And as someone who lived in a, a one parent home, I know there's a lot of people in our culture who have gone through that. And so, you know, despite this framework, that's this amazing, you know, exploration of these ideas that you just expressed, it all comes back down to how do we connect to each other? How do we, how does love work? And how do we, how do, what are the familial bonds that carry us through life and, and the various challenges that, that we face around that? And that's, I think, a beautiful theme that comes through a lot of your work. How might that also play out in uh, the, the, the thing, laughing alien? Where's the thread that ties those two things together around human? Okay, so, yeah, thank you. Thank you for mentioning that. Uh, just one more note on, on Dakini Love was that um, I didn't want it just to be about theoretical concepts, uh, and I think every story needs to be grounded in a human reality and and something that's relatable for all of us. And with the case of Dakini, she lost her parents at a very young age. It's really affected her own sense of self-esteem and uh, she's also not had a, a big relationship, a love relationship in her life. So it's really about who am I and how do I fulfill my emotional and psychological needs while I'm saving the world from the bad guys, you know? So I, I like pairing those two up because that human story never never should be absent, you know, and when it is, you just have sort of an arid mental exercise, you know, and I right. want to get, go to the heart. So laughing alien, I wanted to deal with 
uh, I spent a lot of time studying the UFO topic and extraterrestrial um, subjects. And of course, I have not had direct experience. So everything I know, and I really don't know anything, but everything that I've read is secondhand. So, but again, fascinating story material. There's so much interesting reportage about what may be happening. So I wanted to kind of deal with that in a script and get that information out. And a lot of the information in the script is some of the, the leading uh, UFO theory that's, that's out there and that's being promulgated. That said, <laughs> the, the core story is about a journalist and his ex-girlfriend who go to the, the Four Corners area of the Southwest and uh, are introduced to an extraterrestrial being. I call him Daryl, D-A-R-E-L, but Daryl for short. And um, Daryl is actually an enlightened being. He's the survivor of a Roswell-type crash. He's been harbored by Native Americans for decades. And he's become kind of this guru, kind of. He's, he's an enlightened being, but he's got this bizarre, down-to-earth sense of humor. And he's come to the realization as an embodied being, extraterrestrial, human, whatever, that the only important thing is love. And that's really the core message of the story. And the journalist and his ex-girlfriend kind of reconnect over the course of the story. And in the meantime, there's this incredible adventure where they meet this being and he he, they learn a little bit about his world and his history, but then they go to an underground base and um, find out all kinds of interesting stuff. But end of the day, the story is about love. And no matter what's happening in the world, whether or in the universe, you know, different worlds, different beings, the bottom line is that we're all animated by love. And that's the answer, you know, so it really doesn't matter what the technology is and what you look like. I think that's, that's the message of the story. And I think any being, whether they be extraterrestrial or human is going to come to that in inevitable conclusion. How do you keep that very uplifting cornerstone of life alive in your life with the drama happening every day around us? Well, I have a, I have a feeling that um, when you say the everyday drama around us, that's something that you kind of subscribe to, or you can end your subscription. So <laughs> I've kind of ended my subscription. <laughs> I like that. I like that. I, I canceled it. Uh, Cancel culture. Yeah. <laughs> I uh, used to keep up on the news and politics, and I was getting very angry about a lot of stuff. And it doesn't matter which side you're on. You can be a liberal angry at the conservatives or vice versa. It's all about division. And I think that's really what the mainstream uh, media is about, is fomenting division uh, and distracting you, not just from what's really going on, but also from your own power. Um, and it, it does give you a sense of powerlessness when you're reading that all this terrible stuff is, you know, so I just, it's called unplugging. I just unplug and, you know, I'm still checking things a little bit once in a while just to see what the mainstream narrative is, but I don't miss it a bit, you know, in my life, you know, call me um, isolated or reclusive or unrealistic, but um I live my life on a day-to-day -day basis in my own sphere with the people that I interact with. And it's a beautiful life. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not oppressed by anybody right now. <laughs> Hope fingers crossed that stays that way. <laughs> yeah. I think it takes more than crossing our fingers, but um, <laughs> one of the things that is uh, again, important about your work is that it propagates this idea beyond the sphere of your small group, Tony. It, these these artworks remind us that it's possible to live in the manner you describe. And that's one of the things that I think is really it, those that voice is would not have been getting through the Hollywood machine as easily or as clearly as it has as an independent filmmaker. 
and and I see that value in in what you're doing. I'm going to shift a little. I do want to come back to the outsider at a later moment, but for the moment, I wanted to ask you. You know, one of the things that happened in the late '60s, early '70s was there was this group of of uh, firebrands that tried to break away from the Hollywood scene and they formed Zotrope studios in the Bay area. And there was this kind of this message of the Bay area filmmaker, the independent thinker filmmaker. And I know that you've been part of the Bay area filmmaking scene for a long, long time. Did you ever feel like you were connected or uh, supported by that movement as it took embodiment in the Zotrope approach or were you kind of an outsider to the outsiders? Uh, I, I certainly was never involved in that, except that um, my AD, assistant director on The Prankster, is a guy named Mike Kitchens, who was very much a part of that. And he worked with uh, Francis Coppola and George Lucas back in the early days of Zoetrope. And he told me all the stories uh, about that. And he's the one who actually got me inspired to do independent production. So. In that sense, the spirit of do your own thing and do it away from Hollywood was transmitted um, through Mike to me and telling me the stories about, about the uh, guys in San Francisco who were doing that. Um, that said, I yeah, I do think independent filmmaking is kind of a an individual path. And um, I don't know. I, I think it's really amazing what's going on now because there's so much more content and there's so much different types of content that I think it's it's the prime time for the independent to do whatever they want. Now, getting it out there and getting it seen and monetizing it, that's a different story, you know, but, you know, just like we're doing right now, here's some content, an hour of, of interesting content that you never would have seen in 1978. So, yeah, this is great. So do you have plans to put the time, energy, and attention and forces of will that went into bringing the projects that you've completed so far to completion, like Dakini Love and Laughing Alien and The Outsider, how much juice do you have left in the tank to finish those projects? (laughs) (laughs) We lost them. He slumped (laughs) Uh, You know, I, I have a new approach, Mark, Brad. Um, and it's really sort of a, some would call it magical thinking. I call it magical reality. Um, and that's that I spent a lot of time and effort really muscling through to achieve the making of three films. And it, a lot of personal to promote the idea that that that's the only way or that's how you do it. Um, I would like to think, and I think it was my path. You know, I don't think it was, there's people who don't even try and end up as filmmakers or as actors or whatever. You know, you've heard the stories about, Hey, I went with my friend to an audition. I never acted before. And and they asked me the audition and now they're Brad Pitt or whatever, you know? So, uh, I think there's a bit of destiny and I think that our souls choose a path for us. And for me, my path was really varied and included the real estate, which included a very powerful working out of a relationship with my father, which is, you know, I used to think, Oh, how boring and and petty, but actually it was one of the most important relationships of my life. And I learned so much, even though it was difficult. So all that said, My attitude now is to let it come to me. I feel like I've paid my dues. I know how to write a script. I know how to direct a movie. I know how to produce a movie. And it's out there, and I'm holding the vision that good opportunities will come to me now without effort. So I have the juice to do that, and I'm going <laughs> to – that's my approach. And I do think, you know, it's, it's like a lot more fun um, and yeah, it's, it's, that concept is yet to be proven in practice. And my attitude on that is that, Hey, if it's meant to be, 
it's meant to be. If it's not, whatever I'm doing is what it's meant to be. And I accept that fully and embrace that. It's about not being attached or identified with, uh, you know, what you do or a certain outcome. It's very zen. You have to really let go. And it's not easy to let go, but it's a lot easier than trying to push the boulder uphill over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I noticed that in the, the synopsis of the outsider, particularly in the poster, it's all people of color in the poster. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a strong theme there. I didn't get to read quite as much of the synopsis of that film before we started our, our discussion today, but it also involves an orbital Island, mm -hmm. which is a similar device to some other things that we've seen in, in the uh, movie making marketplace. And I'm curious to you, what was it about that device that appealed to you? And, and what, what does that do for you, that film? Yeah. You know, that film or that storyline actually came to me uh, in a dream quite a while ago. I mean, the, the basic premise of it and um, the orbiting city, the, the premise of the story for the listeners is that earth has been destroyed but before it was destroyed, there was a, a, a recreational resort type city which started to orbit the earth and their people went kind of like Las Vegas or just for fun and, and a great place to hang out. And that survived. And now it's um, it's all that exists, according to the people who live on, the, on that orbiting city. Um, and I want it to be a metaphor for the earth and the human um the human journey and the, all the, all the issues that are on the Island are what we had on earth. And there's, it's easier to show on that Island. Well, there's a central control and there's um, things happening that are kind of some like symbolic of what's actually going on here right now. Like there's different zones where the people can go to have a virtual reality experience, but it's not really virtual. I, it's, it's a, it's a, I forget what I call it, but it's where pro people have been programmed. So you're not dealing with, you know, uh, a screen, you're dealing with actual human beings, but they're programmed and, you know, there, there's an off button. So if they get violent or something, you can, <laughs> you can exit, but it's really about um, the world we live in now and how we live and what's important. And, the basic story is there's a guy who's exiled from the island for becoming too godlike. He's a this fantastic athlete, um, and he's basically kicked off the island, but they pretend that he's being sent off to explore for a new planet because the island ostensibly wants to land on a new planet. And his pod, which is supposed to blow up, actually malfunctions. It lands on the Earth. He survives, and he sees that there's these nascent, civilizations the earth is not dead and there's these new this new civilization of people living in accord with nature and and spirit and he goes oh my god you know i gotta get back to the island and tell everyone you know this is great um but of course the people on the island are not interested in that happening so that's how the story starts and i'm not going to tell you anymore <laughs> <laughs> I love it that the island itself is a metaphor for and a device for you to share some of the wisdom and insight that you have about the way we have put social things together and what it's mm -hmm. costing us and how it's blinding us uh, right. to love again. Right. Yeah. There it is. Right. Yeah. Um, I just think it's a lot of fun. I mean, the one of the core things in on the island is that they have these different zones such as Rio and Zimbabwe and the mean streets of New York. And the people are there are just kind of addicted to these adrenaline rush things. It's almost, you know, I was thinking a little bit of Las Vegas and I haven't been to Las Vegas in a long time, but I've read about, Oh, you go and you know, it's, there's, there's a casino called New York, New York, and there's the Eiffel Tower. And as you can right. have any experience you want there, but it's all fake. And <laughs> that's what the island is. And um, they're trying to sell people on how great this is. And you don't need the earth and you don't want to go back there. And, you know, just just divert yourself with you know these hedonistic pleasures or, or whatever it is. Um, there's a place... Uh, 
what, what is it called? Where, uh, I'm sorry, the, the, the main character returns and he has to go into this Jurassic Park type situation where there's animatronic uh, animals. And they've already portrayed his hellish experience on Earth, which it wasn't hellish. They just told the people that, hey, here's what happened when Dominion went to Earth and he met the mutant and the, and the velociraptor. And, and then he has to actually go through the amusement park situation and, and is attacked and has to do battle with the, the fake mutant and the fake dinosaur. And it's, it's, it's a lot of fun actually. Yeah. <laughs> so if you were going to rate your desire to see that particular script made, make it to screen on a scale of one to 10, what's your desire? 10 being greatest. 10. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I'd you. love to see it. Um, you know, um, a lot of people think that that's, it's time for that. And as you pointed out, it is a very diverse story. All the main characters are people of color, uh, mostly African-American. And um, not that it matters. It's just people of all races in there. But um, I think the time is right for that story. And as you said, there's been other movies where there's been sort of a, a station. I think Elysium is one that's like that. And oh, I think the silo right now is playing, but that's not, they haven't really gotten outside much yet. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm into the silo for sure. I just don't, yeah. haven't gotten through season one yet. Oh, okay. I won't tell you then. Sorry. Um, but no, I, I get it. Like it makes sense to that. And I love the device and particularly the thing about the nascent society that is emerging on the planet is centered around women's leadership. Yes. Very good. Yes. Um, there's a, a group, uh, that's emerged from this. Actually, the nascent society has a couple of branches. The first generation was more spiritual and, you know, they, they, um, wanted to point out, Hey, the reason the, the world almost got completely destroyed and we had to go hang out in the caves for five years was because technology was, misused so we're going to focus on the spiritual ways and and and, it, and it living in accord with nature but the younger generation including this group called the strong women uh, they call themselves the strong women are like hey you know we're we got this and actually technology can be kind of cool and they've developed these kind of And it can break. <laughs> June buggy things, and they're Tony. Things are complex. It's not like society needs to really reconcile. <laughs> Just so you know, technology broke oh, right wow. after we to discuss it. <laughs> Could you repeat that last bit? Right when you started talking about the positives of technology, <laughs> we lost you. That's a that's a sign. Yeah. Well, the the strong women believe in resurrecting technology. The older group, not so much. And I'm saying, really, it's about resolving and and reconciling uh, technology and spirituality on the 3D level of of human existence. So you know that's that's their issue, and, and they're they're going to handle that. But first, they got to bring everybody from the island back to Earth and give them a chance to experience earthly existence, to be rehumanized. So I got a question. So part of storytelling is the freedom to have the story go the way you want, and um, a really easy example of that is Quentin Tarantino talking about Inglorious Bastards when he realized, oh, I can kill Hitler. You know, like he, I could do whatever I want. Um, and your stories are very uplifting. And we live in a time where AI is prevalent and shooting throughout everything. It's just growing like a storm. We have cars driving themselves throughout San Francisco. Um, do you see hope for humanity in ground in our reality in our current yeah you know the, the reason i write uplifting stories is to help foster that reality 
you know, it isn't like, here's the reality over here and it's, oh, it sucks or no, it's great. Well, it's kind of what you want it to be um, and what you make of it. You know, and I, I know that's hard to hear, especially if you're tuned into the news and you say, oh, these bastards are doing all this shit. Oh, wait, I, how can I how can I be happy when all that stuff's going down? Or if you're working three jobs to feed your four children. Yeah. Right, right. And, you know, I'll listen to anyone's version of, of their reality and be empathetic and but or not. But and. I do think we have a lot of power as individuals to create. That's what the outsiders about. We have the power to create the reality that we want. And it may not be a smooth journey. It may be two steps forward and one step back. There may be some major bumps. Our soul may have chose for us in this lifetime, some hard lessons and, you know, big picture perspective. It's all for our highest good. You know, and I don't mean to, to spiritually bypass either. It's, I know people go through hard shit. I, I have, and I know you have. So, um, all that said, we have the ability to help contribute and create what we want. Is it automatic? No, but it's, it's a drop in the bucket and it's going in the direction we want it to. So that I, I choose to create uplifting stories with positive endings. Cause I do think that's possible for people. Yeah. And so the transmission is a symbol of the kind of conditioning that we receive that prevents us from really fully emboldening ourselves to exercise these powers of creation that you're talking about. Like at the fundamental level, we are creators and mm -hmm. something is shrouding the reality of our ability to do that. And the films you make and your life in total, Tony, is an example that you can operate from the place of your own creative power. You have to choose that and you can't get sidetracked. I mean, the whole thing within the outsider and the zones where the people go is, is we're giving distractions. We're giving uh, Big Macs or given the Super Bowls or given stuff to, oh, uh, let's just party and, <laughs> and, 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 you know, ignore our pain or, you know, not try to do something better. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not being a social critic. You know, I, I like to have a good time as much as the next guy. And I think we need to have a balanced life where we, we have fun and we also have our work, you know, so, um, that said, I do think we get to choose where we want to put our attention and that has a power to it. And that has helps to manifest what it is that we want to see in the world, be the change you want to see. Right. Yeah. It's interesting because my experience with Baja, if you had said to me, Hey, Greg, here's going to be what you experience. This is what's going to happen. I would have run the other direction probably. And in hindsight, it is one of the highlights of my life. And part of that highlight is the extreme challenge. Yeah, isn't it the way it is in life? You know, that some of the hardest things were some of the, the greatest things in terms of our learning. And once we're past them, right? Or once we've right. gone through them, I should say. Yeah. 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 So, you know, uh, yeah, it, it, you know, that calls to question, what, what are we here for? Are we just here to have fun and what, what does that mean for you? And yes, partly, but um, we're here to ex the experience of life and all of its, all of its breadth. I mean, life can be, is a piano with 88 keys and we're not here just to play one note, you know, happy, 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 happy. It's, to experience all of it, include and the feeling level too. It's it's experiencing all the diversity of feelings and not pushing that away. And it's I know that personally, um, when hard feelings come up, pain, fear, sadness, depression, anger, we tend to want to push those away. And um, I think we shouldn't. You know, have to experience it as as hard as that is. 
I'm just learning that still. <laughs> yeah. We all are for sure. No question. No question. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> um, I want to ask you, I've read a lot and I was just young enough to have the lap taste, the tail end of the experience that we call the sixties. And one of the, pivotal and central stories around that is the rise of grateful dead and the merry pranksters. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering what relationship does your name for your film company and your life experience have to that? And, and what's, what's your view? What's your perspective? How did you intersect or not intersect with that sort of, wild woolly bus ride that the merry pranksters embodied and how has that in if at all influenced your choosing the name prankster entertainment well i actually went to high school in the late 60s so i was more than aware of uh, all the stuff that was going on although as a high schooler i was a little conservative it wasn't until college that i let my hair grow and started listening to the dead and all that stuff. And that was great. Um, but I think the name prankster really, for me, developed independently of that. Um, my thing in high school actually was pulling elaborate, sophisticated pranks, um, kind of like the kids and the prankster, you know, I mean, that's was really inspired by my own experience. And for me, it was kind of a way to poke a hole through the illusions of, you know, the facades of people, the illusions of the society, the, the authority, the authority figures who were pompous and, and mean. So uh, that that was the impulse to be a prankster. And it was just really fun. It was very creative. Um, and I thought, uh, and then actually having traveled to the Southwest a number of times, there's this humpback flute player symbol called Coco Pelli. And I looked him up and he's basically the native American God of mischief who goes around not pulling pranks per se, but just kind of being a mischievous guy, creating a little chaos to wake people up. It's to wake people up. It's not, just to be a jerk, <laughs> it has a, a positive purpose. So to me, that was like, I love humor. I love comedy. I love to laugh. And I love stories that uh, not only make you laugh, but give you insight um, and make you a better person, really. So that was the impulse for Prankster. You know, I wanted the films to be uh, fun and funny and wake you up, just like Coca-Cola. All right, so you said you were in high school in the late 60s, and I know you went to San Rafael High. That is presumably the origination of 420. Can you say, put to rest in my mind, is that a fact? Did 420 originate at San Rafael High? You know, I have no idea. The guys who, who lay claim to that went to, there were a couple years behind me, and I know there's a heated debate amongst those guys that who admitted it. And I say, so what, you know, it's like, <laughs> yeah. that, please, please get a life, you know? <laughs> now, and, <laughs> yeah. I actually, yeah. The, the one, the guy who, who claims to have invented it, Brad Ban is a, it's a, is a sweet guy and a good guy and a friend and he was a next door neighbor. So Brad still love him. <laughs> so I want to follow up on this idea of pranksters versus jerks. And mm. there's this fine line in there, right? Where, mm. and, and as a human interest storyteller, as someone who really, really endeavors to follow the lines of the heart and, and, you know, joy versus pain, how would you describe the fine line between being a prankster and a jerk? Sometimes things we intend to be fun crossover and that's sort of the risk we take in uh humor yeah i mean that's that's a good question and um you know i don't i i believe in the humor of uh human nature and human characters i i don't believe in making fun of people and 
putting them down. So I think being a jerk is being mean spirited and putting people down. Um, being a prankster is holding to light some human foible or in the case of people who are already mean or, um, you know, hurting people one way or another is to expose them or humiliate them to, to bring them down to size and maybe wake them up a little bit. But yeah, you never play a prank on an innocent, sweet person. You only do it on someone who deserves it. Yeah. And it's, it brings us into the nature of uh, the humorous nature of the challenges of life. Like we can relate to everything as if God is playing a prank on us on a certain level. And, and through that lens, we have this access to joy, even in troubled times, because we can see that, you know, the, my theory is that if I were the ultimate deity who had created all time, space and existence, and I had to observe it throughout all time, space and existence, I would want it to be more like a sitcom than an action adventure picture. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, yeah, go ahead, Greg. Well, I have a question with jerk versus so in your first film, The Prankster, I'd say there's two jerks. There's Blotto and there's Brad. I want to make sure I got the names correct. Um, and at the end of the story, Blotto's actually, in my opinion, he's a friendly person. He's come. So as a storyteller, what differentiated Blotto and Brad? Oh, okay. Well, you know, my intention is always, if possible, to redeem characters, you know, uh, and that's not always possible, as you're pointing out. Uh, Blotto, pretty much everyone at the end of The Prankster is redeemed. Uh, Brad is a case of not so much. But, you know, one thing that Brad does is uh, really people, you have to see the movie to understand what we're talking about. He's kind of a kid who's who's a conformist and the student body president and just uh, on top of everything, but very phony anyway. Uh, and he's influenced by his very overbearing father who's doctor for us. But the end of the story, Brad's telling his father to shut up. So I think that's his <laughs> transformation <laughs> and he's mm-hmm. ready to, uh, you know, maybe be a little more real, but, um, you know, that just wasn't appropriate for him to be. You know, not everybody can be redeemed right away that's my answer to you all right perfect what's you've mentioned spirituality and things a lot along those lines throughout the discussion today and i'm curious about whether that's a broad-based thing for you or whether there's a spiritual practice that you find is is a sort of central aspect or whether it like me it's a recognition of the kind of universality of all of the spiritual underpinnings while recognizing at the same time the the human failures of the institutions that embody them. Where, where are you on the spiritual spectrum? I'm pretty much with you. I, I think there's, you know, the, the truth of life and of spirit is one, and uh, all the different religions and uh, teachers and gurus are really talking about the same thing. In their own way, it's kind of like the blind man and the elephant. No, it's this. It's it. Well, it's yeah. it's all of that. Um, so, I think it's it's really best for for me and I, maybe for a lot of people to pursue their own path and be really eclectic. I have, um, you know, I started way back and uh, reading stuff that expanded my reality of the world and spirituality stuff like Carlos Castaneda. And there was a medium named Jane Roberts who did Seth speaks. And then more recently, I'm a big, big fan of Eckhart Tolle and the power of now. Uh, I think that's a really a very elegant teaching, which really points you back to yourself and your own truth and the present moment and what could be more simple. So, um, Anyway, to answer your question is, I think the truth is everywhere. And uh, the Zen people say, uh, you can know the universe in, in a dewdrop. 
So if you're of a mind to do that, you can go outside and contemplate a dewdrop and, and get it all there, wherever, whatever works for you. Coming back, did, was there, not, anyway, was there ever a moment you experienced of crippling fear before you started rolling on the prankster where you almost stopped? Uh, no, I mean, not to the point of almost stopping. I mean, I had a, a real pain in my gut, you know, almost every morning. I said, we're going to do what today? How, how the hell is it? Are we going to do this? But um, that's really harks back to you learn by doing. And one of the things you learn is that you can do it and you can get through it. And you develop strategies and you develop trust and confidence. And, um, you know, Baja was really a lot easier and Freebird was a lot easier than that. You know, it's just, right. just almost getting to be a little tedious on Freebird. I mean, <laughs> really? <laughs> well, it, it's kind of like from a directorial point of view, when you have to cover a scene, Okay, let me just give you a, an example. In Baja, we had one scene toward the end of the movie where everyone's seated at a big dining table and they're talking about, okay, what do we do now? And there's like seven or eight characters. And we did a master shot and we did individual sh- And it's a long scene. It's three and a page scene. So I did like three pages on this guy, three pages on this, and just play it through all the way. And it's just like freaking grueling, you know, because you're just trying to, you know what you want and you, it's just, you have to, to go through it and get it. You know, and that's why sometimes I think maybe it would be great just to be a producer sometime and let someone else do that. So long as they're on board with, with the, the vision, you know I mean? Cause the director really has so much to say with the vision. Maybe I just need someone to help with the heavy lifting, but um, anyway, it gets a lot easier as you move on. All right. All right. <laughs> so, if I wanted to green light, say, laughing alien tomorrow, what, how much of a budget would I need to provide you? That's a very interesting question too, because budgets can be highly variable uh, depending upon who's doing it. I mean, for a studio to do that movie, you know, sky's the limit, hundred, $200 million for uh, a canny savvy independent filmmaker who's you know saving money wherever they can i don't know you know maybe uh, how low can you go uh maybe five million so that's that's the gamut (laughs) of it and it it really depends how resourceful you are i know cgi can be done really cheaply now um Five to ten million, and, and that's saying you're talking to a guy who's never made a film that was very much more than a million. So I mean, I can't even imagine that much budget. Although I'm, I'm really encouraging that to happen. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I think there's there's a lot of wastefulness in these big budget Hollywood things. I mean, those what you got to understand is that the big corporate filmmakers are writing in a lot of profit just in the production, just to pay their overhead, just to pay their people and stuff. It's like how much of that money is actually on the screen. Whereas an independent filmmaker can put it all on the screen and, um, and then some, and I, I do think an independent filmmaker can be overly cheap and overly, uh, fixed on, Oh, I don't, I made it for this little money. Well, you know, I'm kind of, I think, in the middle ground now. I, I like to see, like to see more resources applied to do more interesting things. The the real hard part about a super low budget is you don't have a lot of choices and you have to move fast. Which the moving fast part, but you know, you just don't have the resources. And it, wouldn't it be nice to really take the time and hire, you know, some really good people who really do all this stuff? And so. Um, Long answer to your question, the budget could be anywhere from five to two million to two hundred million if I do it. Um, it just depends who's who comes on who's coming forward with the money and how how they wanna what kind of result they wanna get. And of course if you get a big name A list actor, you know, that's could eat up a huge chunk right there. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> mm. 
<laughs> yeah, but we don't have to worry about that because what's meant to be is just going to happen. <laughs> just sit back with our feet up on the desk and wait for the calls to come in. <laughs> <laughs> be happy in the wait. <laughs> be here now. Yeah. All right. We have a uh, question that I don't think is going to be relevant, but you might surprise me. But this is a question we pretty much have asked all our guests. At least this year. At least this year, yes. <laughs> okay, I'm dying to know what this question is. M&M or Foo Fighters? <laughs> Devo. <laughs> Are we not men? <laughs> awesome. <laughs> uh, I think that's it. Is there anything else that you'd like to touch upon? Well, first, let me ask this. Where can people find you if they're interested in getting a hold of you? I have a website, uh, pranksterentertainment.com, and that has everything you could want to know about me, my movies, new projects, old projects, and how to get a hold of me. At pranksterentertainment.com. Yes. And, um, yeah, the, the one thing I wanted to say in closing is that um, – I want to extend my gratitude to a lot of people. You, Greg, of course. Mark, thanks for having me on. And uh, but especially my my wife Janet, who has been really an inspiration to me and been a really supportive in a way that's helped me achieve a kind of uh, inner peace that I've never known before and a spiritual understanding that's far greater than a, that whole thing about life is a piano with a lot of key. that's from her and i i, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't come up with that. <laughs> credit where credit is due <laughs> yeah so you know big big ups to my wife and uh, i know she's gonna be watching this so love you recording stopped